Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning again, Lord. And it's not just a song that we sing, Father, but we know that in prayer, in the study of your word, we can come to the altar. We can come before you, knowing, Lord, that your arms are open wide to receive us. And Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, enter in today, that we would set aside all the troubles and the cares of the week for just this little moment here this morning that we could rest, that we could rest in the knowledge of you, that we could desire, Lord, above all else today here to seek your face, to see a mighty move of your spirit. And I pray that each of these here, myself included, that this morning we would expect great things from you. Because that's the promise in your word that we can lay hold of today, an expectation that you'll move in a mighty way in our midst. So Lord, do that work here today, I pray. As we turn to your word, may, like the psalmist has said, Lord, that we would see the treasure that it is. That the word in which we hold in our hands, Lord, that we would have a sense of the power of it the power to change hearts and minds, the power to change lives, the power to restore. And so, Lord, do that work here today, I pray. Lord, help us to put all the other things aside. Help us to put assumptions aside and and preconceived ideas of what church is or should be, but to pursue you here this morning and to know that we're sitting amongst brothers and sisters, that the bond we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that cannot be compared with. So Lord, help us to enjoy that fellowship here today as we study your word. Give us understanding of it, Lord, and I pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified here today, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Charles W. Colson, in his book, How Now Shall We Live, which was written at the beginning of the 2000s, I think it was in 2001 that it was written, said this amongst many powerful quotes, Christians who understand biblical truth and have the courage to live it out can indeed redeem a culture or even create one. This is the challenge facing all of us in the new millennium. Last week and for the past several weeks, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been addressing issues that are present within our culture. And hopefully you've seen that even within the early church, the same things that were present in the culture at that time are being experienced in our culture here today. And so essentially, just like Solomon, the wisest man that's ever lived, aside, of course, from Jesus Christ, who said there's nothing new under the sun, that that would be something that we would recognize, that despite the perils that we see and the sinfulness that's around us, although we should be burdened by it, we can know that it's nothing new. Mankind in their flesh, have sought after the things of the world since the beginning of time. And just like we don't see anything new necessarily in the culture, there's no new solutions either. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that continues to be the solution to the issues in the culture that we face. But what we recognize is that it's not always easy to live it out. It takes courage. It takes faith. But that's the journey that we're on. And just like we saw in last week's message as Paul, as he made his way on his second missionary journey, 
He faced trials. He faced tribulations. He faced challenges. There were difficulties before him as he sought to pursue the calling that God has placed on his life. And we'll see that continue today as he goes into an area that is dark, oppressive, morally corrupt. But we'll see the ways in which God continued to move in his life to give him courage to stand in truth. And that will be the encouragement to us today is to stand for what we know is right, for what we know is true. Today, we'll continue to look at the ministry of Paul and parallel it with our own culture. We'll look at his work amongst an incredibly immoral people and the courage it took to stand for truth. And we'll pick up, if you would, to turn to chapter 17. We'll pick up at the end of the chapter in verse 30. This is where we ended last week. Because I think it's important to recognize what the Spirit said through Paul here as he was finishing up ministry in Athens as we consider our approach with the culture today and even in our own hearts. In verse 30 of chapter 17, it reads, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ there. And a quick theology lesson here. Theology is the study of God. It's a pretty daunting study, if you might imagine. It's an academic pursuit of the knowledge of God, to know more of God and who he is. Theology as a science, and yes, it is considered a science, though some would scoff at that, considers many things, one of which is the revelation of God. How does God make himself known? There is uh, two types of of revelation that we believe uh, God reveals himself within, the first of which is called general revelation. And this is the way in which God is seen or or made manifest uh, in nature, throughout history, the history of, of ancient Israel, and also in the conscience of man being created by God. In the image of God, we have a conscience. There is is a way in which without anyone telling us, we know certain things. We know right from wrong. We have a feeling. We have convictions. And there is something called special revelation, where God has made himself known in in special circumstances, into certain people, in the forms of, of miracles, prophecy, the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, the holy scriptures, he's made known, and and even in our own personal lives, those those ways in which God has shown up in our lives that other people have no real insight into, but we know God was made real to us. What, What all of that tells us, and what Paul is saying here, is that we cannot today say that we don't know. The atheist says that there is no God, or that they don't believe in God. And such a statement is is really rooted uh, in a lack of knowledge, for there is no absolute proof. No one can say there is no God. You can say that you don't believe in God, but the truth is you don't know if there is a God, which makes you not an atheist, but an agnostic, one who does not know. Therefore, in my opinion, there are only agnostics and believers, those who don't know and those who say, yes, I believe. 
And while, while an, uh, a believer may not be able to present absolute proof that would change the, the heart and mind of an individual in one conversation, we have the proof that we've experienced in our own lives. Those, those very things that I mentioned, the revelation of God, we have those things to lead us towards a belief where we can make a choice and say, yes, with everything put in front of me, I believe that God exists. And so those who don't know if there is a God and... and considered that, it, it ultimately boils down to a choice. And, and it's interesting that in its root, agnostic, translated means ignoramus. Now forgive me, I'm not trying to call anyone ignorant today, but that's the translation of the word. And it makes sense, right? And Paul says in the past, God overlooked this ignorance. Why? Well, because before Jesus Christ had made himself known to the nation of Israel and the gospel was then taken to the Gentiles, prior to that time, God overlooked the ignorance of the Gentiles, not of Israel. He recognized that there was a people group there that the truth had not been proclaimed to. But that is now in the past. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has lived, died on the cross, and has been risen again. And it's that that gives us proof that there will come a time when God will judge. And so there is no excuse today. There's no excuse for our world today. To those who choose not to believe, they are simply making a choice to disregard what in their very conscience they know to be true. They may be trying to silence what is in their conscience, but it's still a choice. And there's a point of the day when the man, Jesus Christ, will judge the world. And the choice is ultimately ours. In, in whom will you place your trust? The things of this world? Or in a loving Father who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to redeem you, to purchase you, and to give you eternal life in heaven? And when they heard in verse 32 of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see, there will always be those who believe, those who mock, and those who seem indifferent, or perhaps interested, desiring maybe to hear more. Those who mock, well, it's sad. It is sad, and it can be frustrating, but like Paul, we can depart from among them. See, Paul didn't care to cast pearls before swine. He had preached the gospel. He had done so faithfully. But when they mocked, he was willing to walk away and say, okay, there's others who want to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There are some who are always going to mock. There are people who are ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are the ones that need our attention. And I'm not suggesting we don't strive to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, to every individual. But there are some who just simply will not receive it. The question becomes here, though, are we a people today that, like the few that followed Paul, are we those who are committed, sold out, all in, passionate followers of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul was looking for. He was looking for individuals who were going to say, I'm in. I'm going. I'm going the distance. I want to know more about Jesus Christ. Not just interested. Not just wanting a little tickling of the ears. Entertain me a little bit. Tell me a story. No. I want to know Jesus Christ, and I want to know Him crucified. I want to know how He can change my life, my heart, my mind. That's what Paul was looking for. 
And so as he departed from Athens, that was his this mindset, his heart. He had been faithful to doing what God had called him to do, but he was moving on to a new place with a hope that he could see the gospel change lives. And so we read at the beginning of chapter 18 and verse 1 that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And so he departed. Fewer converts for sure than what he had hoped for, but led of the Spirit, he moved on from Athens and he came to the city of Corinth. We get the sense that Paul was ready to leave. His departure from Athens was fairly abrupt. Seeing people disinterested, mocking the gospel, he was ready to move on. And so he comes to the place of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a proverbial cesspool. To be a Corinthian, generally speaking, was to be a very worldly and immoral person. To be called a Corinthian generally meant you were a drunk and into all various pleasures. There was a term to be called a Corinthian partner, and that was essentially to say that you were a prostitute. Consider what you know of Las Vegas today, Sin City. It was far worse than that. Corinth, or rather Las Vegas, whose mantra is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, to Corinth would be do what feels right and flaunt it for the world to see. There was no shame There was an acceptance, even an endorsement of such sensual and worldly pleasures. And here comes Paul to Corinth. Paul writing his letter to the Romans, he wrote it from the city of Corinth. We'll see that Paul spent about a year and a half there, which is interesting. Paul didn't spend that much time in most of the places that he went, but here in Corinth, the Lord had him do a great work there. And he wrote the letter to the Romans from this place. And in chapter 1, verse 22, we read, professing to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Welcome to Corinth. Now, we can certainly see within that similarities in our own culture today, can we not? Again, nothing new under the sun. And it seems as if the restraining that has been in our culture today that prevents an outright approval of the sinful behavior is somehow diminishing. And I would venture to say a big part of that is because of a lack of presence from the church. And this is what Paul had to say of those he was now led to minister to. This was the world he was now entering into. And I've not spent any length of time in Las Vegas. I know there's good people there good churches in the city and the surrounding areas seeking to do exactly what Paul was doing in Corinth, 
But I did have a meeting there one time. And it was right on one of the hotels on the Strip. And I remember walking down the street and, and walking through the hotel and, and thinking, this is, this is sad. It was overwhelming to me to see the indulgence, the abandonment of morality and principle. And I can only imagine how overwhelmed Paul was by all that he was seeing in the city. Yet, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and, and what gives us insight into why there was such fruitful ministry in this area is what we read in 520 that says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is so much the story, at least in my experience with Calvary Chapel, especially in so many other churches out there, this idea that God gives second chances. So many come to a place where the Word of God is being truly taught because they thirst for that idea of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness. And that is what Paul would find with many in the city of Corinth. It was ripe for the grace of God. And often, you know, I find that those who are living in such a way, their conscience bearing witness to God, that they're trying to silence it because it's convicting. They're trying to numb the pain with a pursuit of the world, with a pursuit of the passions and the pleasures of this world. And then they hear of Jesus and the mercy of our Lord, and they surrender to that, realizing that, that they can receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Claudius at that time had sent all the Jews out of Rome because they were rioting essentially too much. They were too disruptive. And so he sent them away, and here Paul says he came to them, Priscilla and Aquila. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. There's a couple really cool things that we see here in terms of God's provision. You know, Paul was traveling on his own at this time. Now, for anybody who has uh, traveled, maybe you've traveled for work, you men especially if you're out traveling for work, if you're anything like me, you think there are elements of that that I just hate. Being alone. The way the enemy comes and attacks. The way the enemy entices you. And here Paul was going into Corinth by himself. A dark, spiritual place. And as Paul goes in here, you know, he needs accountability. He needs a friend. He needs people he can walk with in ministry. And, and no sooner does he arrive than he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who turn out to be just a wonderful godly couple who begin to serve with him in ministry, and we'll see that next week at the end of this chapter as they become involved with an individual named Apollos and, and teach him and help to raise him up. And so here he's very quickly got now this accountability, this friendship, but even more than that is they were the, of the same trade, tent makers. Paul was a tent maker himself, and so now he's got the opportunity as he's alone and not receiving support from any church that's there. Later, some money will come with Timothy and Silas. Now he's got the opportunity to work with them, to generate income. This is where the term tent maker comes from. When you hear missionaries in the mission field, you hear of a, a bivocational pastor who has a day job, if you will, and a ministry job. I've been there. And people call them tent makers. I don't know how to actually make a tent, though people have called me a tent maker. I can put a tent up that I buy at the store, which sometimes is quite an accomplishment in and of itself. <laughs> Trail life. Come to trail life. Well, we will do lessons on how to put up a tent. 
but I've never made one myself from scratch. But it wasn't just tents, it was all kinds of leather working. Paul could make little things, a coin purse, whatever the case may be. And so here now he's got the opportunity to support himself because God has it in his plan for him to remain there for a period of time. And so he's going to be encouraged by this friendship. And praise God that he does that for us still. Those moments when he calls us maybe to a new venture, a new job, and we can very quickly find that person that we can get connected with. And Paul then in verse 4 reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, so here now Silas and Timothy, they come, and Paul was compelled, it says, by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. We learn later that they would have brought some supplies and some resources from the churches in Macedonia, so they helped to support Paul. But also they told him of the faithfulness of the church there, how it was growing, how it was growing, how they were being led how they were pursuing the Lord. And this compelled him, this encouraged him. For Paul, this was the shot in the arm that he needed. Here he was reasoning with them in the synagogue regularly. He had always felt led to bring the gospel to the Jew first, then the Gentile. And as they come, they encourage him. They encourage him, they build him up. Yet despite Paul's faithfulness, some did not receive it. Some even blasphemed. Some even blasphemed here, as it says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul was, just like in Athens, he was faithful. He was faithful to witness to them, faithful to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. But it was not his responsibility that they were saved. And it's the same for us, and I want you to hear this, that you are not responsible for another person's salvation. You can't do it. You can't get somebody saved. The Lord can use you, but it's His Spirit that draws them under repentance. It's Him who does that work. God asks us to be faithful in sharing the truth. And so Paul was faithful. You know, even if you miss that opportunity... Even if God has given you a, an open door to share the gospel with someone, don't think for a second that if you didn't do it, that God somehow can't get the truth of the gospel to them any longer. That you've not prevented the work of God. No. But here's the thing. You have missed out on being used by God. That's what we need to be aware of. There are ways in which God, the creator of the universe, would seek to use us, me. And he would say, hey, I want to use you in this person's life. That's what we need to be obedient to. It's God giving us an opportunity to minister, to speak truth into someone's life, and it grows our faith when that happens. But we can't ever think that we've somehow become responsible for their salvation. And many of you here today are probably burdened over that very thing. You've been so faithful, you've been working so hard, and you don't understand why it's not happening. Don't be surprised if you step out of the way and they get saved. Sorry. And you don't need to beat yourself up over that, but sometimes that's what happens. You see, Paul will learn that very thing here at the end of this chapter and into chapter 19 with Apollos. He will have to give credit to the fact that he planted a seed, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. That's right. Amen. God gives the increase. So don't worry about whether they will receive it. Be faithful to sharing it. Be faithful and be attentive to what God wants you to do. Go out every morning and say, Lord, what would you have for me today? Have your spiritual sensors up. 
Lord, where do you want me to serve today? Where do you want me to be faithful today? What opportunity do you want me to be faithful to today? And so here is a blasphemed, and it seems as if they likely blasphemed Jesus Christ here. It says that he, in verse 7, departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. That's fantastic. It was next door to the synagogue. He says, okay, you're going to blaspheme Jesus Christ? You don't want me around? Fine. But he shook his clothes. He said, your blood is on your head. I'm clean. I was faithful in proclaiming the gospel to you. I'll go. I'll go to a place where I'm received. And it just happens to be next door. Aren't you going to just love that? Love how God works that way. And then you know what happens here? We read in verse 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. You see, here now was a mighty move of the Spirit in this wicked city. Paul was faithful. He was faithful in doing what God had called him to do. And even though some rejected it, he pressed on, he pushed through, and God began to move. Many of them in the synagogue rejected the message of the gospel. Paul didn't let it phase him. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, gets saved. And now in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now let's break this particular verse down here, because this is where I feel like the Lord has a lot of meat for us today. The first part here, do not be afraid. That the Lord would appear to Paul in a vision and tell him not to be afraid tells us what? that Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. Why was Paul afraid? This is the Apostle Paul. This is that mighty man of faith, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Why would he be afraid? He was a man. Praise God. Just like you and me, he was human. You know, that in and of itself should be so encouraging to us as we see and we read of these great men and women of the faith within the Word of God. That when sometimes we read of what they've done, we can sit there and we can think, Lord, what have I done? I'm so small. When we look at this, not only can we identify here with Paul's weakness very easily, but that means we can also identify with his strength. We can look at him and we say, God can move and use us in the same way if we're surrendered to him. But Paul was afraid, beaten, stoned, mocked, imprisoned, persecuted. At every stop, and more so even recently, it seemed to Paul that there seemed to be great opposition against him. God was opening doors, yet there was growing opposition. By every standard, Paul had a right to be afraid. I can't blame him for the way in which he felt. Some of you today are afraid. Some of you are in fear. In this very moment, something is causing you to fear. God has called you perhaps to a particular work. He's giving you an open door for ministry. He's working on you. His Spirit is leading you to take a step of faith in some way. You're going through a challenging time. And from your perspective, you have no idea how you're going to get through it. God is moving. And maybe for some of you, that's it. Maybe for some of you, God is moving in such an amazing way that you're just thinking, when's it all going to fall apart? Things have been too good. 
Things have been too calm. It's been too peaceful. I better just stay inside today. I better just hunker down and stay right here and just hope that nothing bad happens. See, I'm hitting a nerve there too. You're afraid, but God is whispering to you, do not be afraid. He goes on to say, but speak and do not keep silent. What the Lord was telling Paul here was, do what you are called to do. Some of you may be called to speak. Some of you may be in a situation where you've been holding back, so afraid to share what you know the Lord has put on your heart to share with somebody. But this was where Paul was gifted. This is what Paul was called to. So the bigger picture here for all of us is what is it that God is trying to do in your life? What is it that you've been resisting because you're afraid? Where is it that God wants you to go, but you've been holding back because of fear? The Lord told Paul here, go, do it. What I've called you to do, what I've told you to do, do it. Why? Well, he essentially says to him, because I've got this. I've got it. In verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. He knew what Paul was afraid of. You see, ministry was going well for Paul by many standards. I would love to see the number of people getting saved in this ministry is what Paul saw in his. Are you kidding me? To go into cities and just proclaim the truth and to see people say, I'm going to follow you. Let's go. Sell everything they have. Let's go. Let's... These are Jesus freaks, right? These are people who are just excited on fire for the Lord. There was success in this ministry, but yet Paul was, he was fearing. Why? We don't know all the reasons why, but just as I mentioned before, maybe that, hey, he wasn't cut out for it. Maybe I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. Maybe I just don't want to be stoned to near death again. And that's legitimate, right? Man, that really hurt. Seriously, I just don't want to go through that again, and I'm fearing it. If I go out there right now and I proclaim the truth, I can already tell that the Jews in the synagogue are getting angry, and what's going to happen to me? He was a man. But the Lord says to him, I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. As the saying goes, if God leads you to it, he will lead you through it. Here's another one. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. We could Google these and probably go all day. But here's what this means. I'm with you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you need to hear this morning the Lord tell you, I am with you. For Paul, it was the confidence he needed to continue in the work, whether to be stoned again, imprisoned again. Hey, the last time he was in prison, he was singing. He must not have minded it that much. It's not true at all. It was terrible. It was a horrible situation. But God used him. God was there with him. God strengthened him. And in this moment, God's strengthening him again. Times, again, where maybe he thought, I can't do this. Maybe these same lies that he was hearing from the enemy are what you're listening to in your own life. You can't do it. You're not good enough. Remember your past? Yeah, stay there. Remember all the things you used to do? You're not smart enough. You won't accomplish anything. We've all heard it. We've all heard the lies. They're unique to each and every one of you, but they're there. And we have a choice as to whether or not we're going to listen to those lies or whether we're going to listen to the voice of our Lord saying, I am with you. If God is calling you to something today, if he's working in your life, if he's drawing you by his spirit under repentance and surrender, go, listen, follow. Paul did here. He needed that encouragement. No doubt he woke in the morning and just praised 
God for giving him this vision because he then continued in verse 11 for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This was the reminder that he needed and the reminder that some of you need today to continue in the work that God has called you to. When we're facing discouragement, questioning what God would have us to do, when we're afraid, we can reflect on the promise of his word. We can allow that peace to overcome us as we trust and believe that God is with us. And here, yes, the Jews, they came for him and they took him before the judgment seat. But remember what God said. What did the Lord say to him in that vision? I have many people in this city. Because in verse 12, it says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, you see, Paul was ready. Okay, I got to defend myself here. And he's probably weary. He was probably a little burdened, you know, by, okay, here we go. Lord encouraged me, but here we are. And I remember what happened in the past several cities. So here he goes to open his mouth, but Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Praise God. Paul had to be walking out of this going, okay, Lord, thank you. I get it. I get it. I hear you. Right? You take care of it. Then all the Greeks, they take Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. Paul had to be really floored by that one. I didn't see that coming. But Gallio took no notice of these things. You see how God provided? Paul, fearing that the Jews would rise up against him, he's brought before the judgment seat at Corinth, the proconsul, and here's this man. He wasn't a believer. Gallio wasn't a believer. Many people say he was wicked because he turned his eyes on the beating of Sosthenes here. Others say, if you go back and look at historical texts, that he was actually a pretty fair guy. I'm inclined to think so based off of what he says. He's got wisdom. You guys deal with this. You didn't need to bring this matter before me. This isn't for me to engage in. I think he's a pretty fair-minded individual. God used him. Despite the fact that he wasn't even a believer, and that reinforces for us the fact that God's in charge. Is that news to us today? Yes, even though we see all the wickedness in the world that we see out there, God is still seated on the throne. He can still move. Yes, I have very little confidence in what's happening within our government, but that's not where my confidence is supposed to be. My confidence, my hope is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And though I may not have confidence in certain elected officials, I can still trust and know that God has them there and He can use them as He did here, Gallio. And you know what happened here with Sosthenes? Who got beat? He became a believer. If we read in 1 Corinthians, they'll mention Sosthenes. You don't think after he got beat by the Greeks there that he didn't somehow now start to relate a little bit with Paul? That Paul maybe didn't seize the opportunity to minister to him and to encourage him and to say, hey, I understand. You see, God was at work in a mighty way. And Christian, we live in many respects the new Corinth. All around us, the description of Romans chapter 1 is on display. And those who seek, like Paul, to fulfill the calling that God has placed on their lives, we can often be afraid. But we needn't be. God has many people in this city. God is with us. And it's time for us to speak boldly, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. To do so in love, with compassion, without hypocrisy. It's time for revival again, and we should trust and know that God is with us in this work.
but we've got to be surrendered to it. We've got to be vessels for it. We need to allow God to work in our lives first and our hearts first if we want to be a part of that work, if we want to see that work happen. In verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And now that's an interesting little thing that they drop in there, and that's where we're going to actually end today as we start to transition here. Because I want for us to understand a little bit more around what happened here. Not only do we have the vision that Paul has from the Lord here, the encouragement that can be the same encouragement to us today, that God is with us, that we shouldn't be afraid. But here we had this little insight into this vow that Paul had taken. We don't know exactly what this vow was, but it was likely, first off, a Nazarite vow, if you've heard of such a thing. Why a Nazarite vow? Well, we can see it within the Old Testament. It was part of the Jewish law. And if you had taken a Nazarite vow, you were going to let your hair grow for a certain length of time. Maybe it was a 30-day vow. Maybe it was, I'm going to let my hair grow until the Lord answers this prayer and does this work in me. Whatever the case may be, that was a distinctive of that particular vow. So that it says, when he had his hair cut off, where he had taken a vow, it gives us some insight. What would you typically make a Nazarite vow for? Well, one of the things that we typically see is that it was a vow of consecration. A vow of consecration. What is a vow of consecration, you might ask? It's a good question. In the midst of the sinfulness of Corinth, where he had spent a year and a half ministering, Paul sought to set himself apart, to remain committed to a work, the ministry, the life that God had called him to. He would resolve in his heart to say, though I am here, though I am called to a particular purpose, a plan here that I'm called to minister, I will not defile myself with the things of this world, with the things of this city. A vow of consecration would require these things. First of which, that you would dedicate your heart to God. That it would be a spiritual consecration that you would say, I want a purpose to follow you, God. I don't want to be touched. I don't want to be influenced by the things of this world. Yes, I'm in it, and I want to be faithful while I'm here, but keep my heart, my mind, my eyes fixed on heaven, on you. Secondly, it would require that you reflect on your motives. Why? Why are you doing this? Why do you desire this? Why are you making such a vow? Thirdly, that you would repent. This is a consecration of salvation as well, that you would repent, that you would turn from your ways. Literally, do a 180. Turn around and say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. And if necessary, be baptized. Proclaim it. Proclaim it to people, your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ. Then to separate yourself from the evils of the world. To be distinct, set apart. To say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to be a part of that. Not because you're self-righteous, but because you've told the Lord, I want to be pure before you. And in that time then, and this would be the sixth thing in the list, that you draw closer to God. That in your efforts to separate yourself from the things of this world, to say, I want to be distinct, I want to be different, that you instead of spending your time on those worthless things, you say, Lord, I want to know you more. And finally, to remain committed. That reminder that you would remain committed. And that's what Paul was going through. Is the Lord appeared to him in a vision. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. It's okay. Now, here's the thing. You don't need to commit to a Nazarite vow today. Some of you are thinking, great, all I can grow is just a little, you know, a little bit back here still, right? It's not about letting your hair grow. But I would ask that as we prepare for communion here today, 
that you'd consecrate yourself to the Lord. That as we take communion this morning, as we reflect on the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, as we look back, as we take of the communion wafer that represents his body, his body broken for us, that as we drink of the cup and do so in remembrance of his blood which was shed, that such a reflection today would produce action. That it would produce something that when you walk out of these doors this morning, that you would say, I've purposed in my heart to do this differently, to live differently. That we should leave today determining to do something, to show the Lord that we, like Paul here, are committed to him. That we desire to be set apart from the things of this world. And so I'd ask here this morning, if you would, as we prepare for communion, if you'd bow your heads with me now. And I want to ask first for anybody who's here today who may not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Or perhaps you made a commitment at one point and you've wandered away and you know you need to tell the Lord again that you're sorry, that you repent and that you believe in Him. And so I want to give an opportunity here now for anyone who may be here this morning that needs to make that confession and proclamation to the Lord. If you would just just simply pray along with me and say, Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in His work upon the cross. I believe that He died for me. And I believe that by receiving Him into my life, by surrendering to Him, that my sins are forgiven, that I can have eternal life in heaven. And just talk to Him. Just just tell the Father that you, you trust, you believe, you have faith in that very thing. And receive Jesus Christ into your heart. Say, Father, I invite Jesus Christ to live and reign in my life today. Have your way with me, Lord, I pray. Well, the second thing I want to ask you today is, at the end of last Sunday, one of the challenges that I gave you was to be in prayer. To not be overwhelmed what the Lord may be doing in your life. And just like Paul here today, who's you're struggling with, Lord, how can, can I do it? Can I do it anymore? I'm afraid. That sometimes we get to that place and we think that what's in front of us is so big. How could we ever possibly get there? But you know what? We serve a big God. But here's the thing. It doesn't, it doesn't have to start there. It can start right in that place where you just are on your face before the Lord. Say, Lord, teach me. Show me. Reveal to me, Lord. Work in my life. Work in my heart. I don't want to ask that too. If, if, if whether it was last week or whether it's this morning, if you're here today and you know the Lord is prompting you to something that is bigger than yourself and you're afraid, you're in fear, but you know you need to say, Lord, that's me and I need you to just work in my life and I'm, and I'm asking you, Lord, to just have your way with me. Would you, would you just proclaim that today? We can pray for you. The Lord knows your hearts. He knows right where you're at. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. That you are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your lives to transform your heart and mind. And trust, believe, know that he will work. If you give him the opportunity, if you surrender yourself and say, Lord, I want to be emptied of me and filled with you, that he will work. 
And that's the opportunity we have here now for each and every one of us. Just be in prayer before the Lord and, and consecrate yourselves to Him. That today would be a continuation in our body here and in our fellowship of those who would desire to say, Lord, I want to live for You. And even if I've been walking with You for years, Lord, I know and I trust that You've got more. You've got more for us. That I want revival in my heart. I want revival in my home, in our church, in our community. I want to see the Spirit move in a mighty and powerful way. Make it your prayer here today, but consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart. Whatever it is, I know that within each of your hearts, you have a sense. You have a leading of the Spirit that says, this is the area. This is the area that the Lord wants. And so do business here today. Allow Him to work and to bring you to a place where you're ready to just set that aside and to say, Lord, I'll give that to you. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come now to a time of worship and communion, Lord, I pray as you already have been that you continue to move in the hearts of the people here. Lord, we desire, I pray, each of our hearts, Lord, that we would know you more. you would move in our midst here now. And Father, as we eat of the bread, as we drink of the cup, Lord, we do so just as your word says in remembrance of you, your body broken, your blood shed, that in that, Lord, today, we can proclaim your resurrection until you come. That we could look back on what you've done for us, Lord, that we could reflect on what you're doing in this very moment, Lord, and, and, and allow you to work in our lives and that we could look forward to that day, that glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that that would give us hope, encouragement, and strength, Lord, for the work you've called us to, I pray. Father, pour out your spirit upon us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.